American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy, don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. Hey guys, this is the Anson's Podcast. I am Blaine. That is Sam over there, who's the other voice. We're still hear. working on this this intro thing where we say our names. Um, but you know, hundred episodes in, you think we would have figured that out by now? I'm your host, Sam Eldridge. Well, now people know. Blaine's a guest. I just keep having on. <laughs> Blaine is the only person I know, <laughs> and this is a very special week because after the end of this week, Sam can cannot read Anson's magazine anymore. Yep. He is not allowed. Well, well, there's lots of people out there that read it that are way outside our target and sort of apologize every time they admit it, too. But I know. We do a session sometimes for young guys at Ransom Heart events and older guys who have a heart for young men or who want to know more about their own heart come and are always super apologetic. And we go, you guys, the kingdom is for everyone. Okay. But technically, those sessions are for guys in their 20s. Right. And... I would no longer be invited as of next week. Because you are turning 30. Woo! You excited? I'm excited. In one respect, it feels really young. We're dreaming about a young men's event and our times with young men. And we kind of use that phrase a lot, young men. And a gal on our staff kind of pushed back and she said, like, what does a young man mean to you? I'm like, well, actually, it now includes people up to 35, purely because of where I am. And on the other hand, the difference between now me and a decade ago me feels incredibly stark. I, like I dug through to find a photo of me on my 20th birthday and I look like a child. Did we go to Zaytun on your 20th birthday? No, you weren't out there. I was a sophomore. Okay. Um, it was actually like there's a dance Luke had just flown out. So I've got a picture of me and Luke at a dance at my school. And I don't actually have a picture of me on my actual birthday. I don't know what we did. I don't know if the rest of the family came out and then we didn't. Maybe we were at the Double Tree, one of my birthday. I don't know. It was breakfast. I remember your 21st birthday. Was that that the one? The part that I was there for. I don't know. Anyway. And on the one hand, it feels old. And on the other hand, it feels very young. On the one hand, there's the observed social phenomenon of it looks like adolescence is expanding. Which also feels like the culture just continuing to berate the young. To berate the young. Like, how funny is that? You know, it used to be the kids would leave the house at 18. Now they leave the house at 38. Ha, 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 ha. My kids suck. You all suck. <laughs> Which can be an indication of an absence of maturity and can also be an indication of many other things like changing changing social forms, the expression of values that might actually be consistent. But what's really interesting here is you, to 20-year-old yourself and to 20-year-old me, now look deeply incomprehensible. 
right? Yeah, I had this moment the other day where I was just walking into the bathroom and I looked over in the mirror and I was like, oh, wow. Like 20-year-old Sam would be very intimidated by all of the miles that have gone in. Um, the, the journey of identity, the journey of grief and of growth. Yeah, in many ways, I think 20-year-old me would, would be super intimidated by all of that. Um, and uh, that's also like, okay. I'll have these moments on occasion where I'll watch a younger guy come into our community and realize, oh my goodness, all of these things are look totally opaque because you are my subject right now. It goes, Sam has a minivan. Oh. You have a minivan now. Oh, I do. When you were younger, you had a motorcycle. Now you have a minivan. Stop. You have a house that you do work on, and we replaced your kitchen floor. Yeah, this is better than the minivan example. You have a retirement account that you contribute to. I guess. I'm never planning on seeing it. You have two kids that you push around in strollers on weekends and take to the park. <laughs> you now have a pool membership. Yeah, for the I haven't paid summer. for it yet, but yeah, well, all of this is sounding you, Presumably. Very, yeah. You know, it sounds like one thing, and my resume is not very sexy, is what you're saying. It's not a completely accurate picture. You're not a, you know, it's not like the suburban American track and you're punching the boxes. Ugh. But in your 30s, we can just say that the range of your responsibilities has expanded dramatically. And you've had to make decisions about doctors for your kids and you've had to make Mm -hmm. decisions about dentists for you and your wife and it just goes whoa that that (laughs) stuff is so strange right so i've had several conversations with people a change of a decade does feel like sort of 10 new year's eves all compounded where there's a lot of this looking back, self-evaluating direction. Have I accomplished what I thought I would accomplish? Am I wrestling with the things that I had hoped to be wrestling with? And there's a lot of folks out there who, whether it was a job or a relationship or a stage of life that they thought they were going to be in, um, that can evoke a lot of disappointment. And um, in many ways, I've been able to do some pretty amazing things. And so I feel some satisfaction there. And in other ways there is a sense of disappointment and longing and of things I'd like to do next. But I remember a couple of years ago, I had this shift in me. Early 20s is a fairly exciting time. There's a newness. There's the novelty of being able to drink in public legally. And there's sort of like the cultural message of you are at this peak. You're the this peak of youthfulness, of energy, and of opportunity. By about my mid-twenties, I started to realize that like everybody I knew thought that they were the coolest thing around. Even if they were just a waiter at a restaurant and most of them would finish their shift and then spend all their money at the same bar and then go home and they thought they were like amazing. I'm like, you guys aren't amazing. That was depressing. Save some of that money. Do something with it. And I found myself looking at people in their 30s and thinking, the words that came were like, they were really sexy. And the reason was, it felt like the 30s was the first time that the choices that you've been making or not been making begin to be really evident and you can't hide them anymore. Um, Whether that's been a physical choice for your wellness of your body or a spiritual choice and practice 
or an identity choice in practice. There, there's been enough time now that you have either been walking things out or not that you can't hide it. And I think there's a reason that a lot of the the events that we do has this average age of guys in their 40s, and it's it's a lot of it because you can't deny the pain anymore. Like there's there's things that are not working and have not been working. And most of my college buddies thought, and probably still think, sorry, college buddies, that they could make it work. And I'd see people in their 30s and go, you're that guy and it's beginning to fall apart. And it's now obvious to everybody else or somebody else and go, wow, you have really taken care of yourself and your family and your walk with God. And you, you are so much more of an attractive person because of all of those things, because they're now bearing some fruit than you were in your twenties where maybe a lot of that was underground and that wasn't super obvious. So I got really excited about my thirties a while ago and I hope to join the second group that I mentioned. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a good moment because we just did an episode on what do you measure and what's a good time frame to measure a particular kind of achievement. And for our guys who are in their 20s, and I'm in my 20s, and we have a huge tribe of friends in their 20s, if you see the trophy, you miss the story. And that's true anywhere. If you see the house, you miss the story. If you see the finish line at a triathlon, you miss the story. And we now can look at the decade that is your 20s and part of the motivation for this conversation was to go, let's point at some of the things and get to the reality, what we believe to be true about masculine development in the 20s came out of real experiences that are now encapsulated in things like a triathlon habit, but didn't start there. So you wrote a book in your 20s. Yes. How did that happen? Um, Killing lions. I did have a distinct number of advantages that probably many guys don't, and that began with a dynamic with our dad that was based on relationship. Um, I knew that he cared about my heart regardless of some of the choices I would make, um, that there was a call back to a certain way of living. That's why I have that caveat of some of the choices I would make. Um, and so a phone call with him wasn't something to be afraid of. It was actually a really helpful thing, like a sounding board. Um, and so it was the post college years and all of these things were bubbling under the surface, right? Like the, the identity that I've been living out of that I sort of could put words to, but also really couldn't. And that was frustrating a lot of my momentum and direction. Um, And there were a a lot of directions and very little momentum. And so because I had that basis of heart safety with dad, these phone calls started happening. And I just call him up one day and I'm like, dad, this is not working. I don't know what should be working. I'm living in the same town I went to college at. I'm buying cat food for a wealthy family and somehow I have insurance because of that job and I'm dying. Like this sucks. 
part of that was like the message of the the college world, which is something I've been thinking about recently. There was some good advice given in my college career of like studying things that you love, but there was also this false expectation that as soon as you graduate, that's going to equate to a career. Um, and for very few people it did. And that was a, a frustrating experience. And so because of those conversations where I got to be like, yeah, this isn't working. Um, it, it began to stir some of those deeper things. And so for me in my young twenties, some of the massive themes that came out were identity and direction. Like those are the big questions. Uh, who am I and where am I going? And I think if you had given me, I just kept asking for the roadmap. And if you had given it to me, I would have just gone off and done it and probably never asked God any other questions or asked my dad any other questions. And so I didn't get the roadmap. But there was also the permission for it to take a while. I remember going into my 20s, we were on a family vacation. So this is now 10, 11 years ago. And dad just gave this blessing over the 20s. He said, your 20s are years as a decade of exploration. Let it be exploration. Try try different things. Do different jobs. Move to different towns. Explore what you enjoy, what makes you come alive. And don't worry about making mistakes because this is a time where you you want to take the pressure off and there isn't this need to get everything right, um, which was super helpful to have that spoken over me before I entered the 20s. Um, and then to be doing the writing of the book, Killing Lions, again, that that blessing was still there. Like, let it be a decade of exploration. Explore those things that are going on beneath the surface. I love it so much because I know I could look at Killing Lions, that book project, and go, Dad and Sam had a conversation. They decided to write a book to young men. So they had a few brainstorming sessions and did some research, and they compiled what they believed to be an effective list of trials facing young men. Undo all of that and go, uh, for a really long time, you guys were having conversations about your own life. Yeah, for probably over a year. Yeah, that came out of a relationship that had been uh, intentionally engaged for a lot longer than that. Right, like 23 years. And then eventually you started to realize, because I think in, maybe this was is in the book itself or is something that you mentioned when it was being written, but that that phone call exchange then also included or became an email exchange and you were writing back and forth on topics. Is that apocryphal? I don't know. There actually were emails back and forth. I think it was purely a phone call um, once a week. And then um, after I got married, we were driving towards Minnesota and stopped here in Colorado. And that's when dad kind of threw out. Well, uh, it's actually in the book that I had my brother-in-law really challenge me on this whole, like, you want to do this thing, but you feel like you shouldn't get to do it because you've got the opportunity to do it. And that doesn't actually make sense. And so how about you let go of some of your pride and own some of your desires and step into this thing. So when I came here, it was, all right, now let's begin typing out some of these things that we've been talking about. And then a book happened. (laughs) Da, da, da. Right. So it's pretty, you know, when somebody asks me, how do you write a book? I give pretty poor advice. (laughs) 
And you also go, a book is such an illusion. I mean, more to be said on that. But next one, your sexy travel portfolio. Oh, is this a question? You've climbed Kilimanjaro. Yeah. And been mountain climbing in Borneo. Mm-hmm. Ecuador, Korea, L- Ecuador, Japan. Ecuador, Korea, Japan. These things. Germany. That goes, wow, super traveler. Right. What's the story? You and Susie have been all over mm-hmm. in the decade of your 20s and then in the first decade of your marriage. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm like, what? I'm 22. I'm about to get married. And... I think something that I was really afraid of and still am, but maybe less so because I've tried to develop habits that keep me away from this. Um, I was really afraid of slipping into autopilot in, in any arena, but particularly with my home life and with the person that I was. I knew that I wanted to be growing and exploring and doing and I never want to like have the moment where I wake up and scratch my head and I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I now 35 and I own a minivan and I live in suburbia. And so if those things happen, they better be on purpose and I better have my eyes wide open. And so while we were engaged, we had some conversations of like, what are some rhythms that we want to establish that are going to help disrupt the natural rhythm of things? Because we like habits, we like rituals, we like the path of least resistance. And and then when we look back, we really regret that we did all that. Um, it's really easy to just get into a rhythm and do your nose to the grindstone cliches and then have a year go by. And so a shared love was of traveling. Um, and we didn't really know how we were going to do that because in college we both did semesters abroad where kind of the the school figures out where you're going to go and where you're going to stay and you basically just have to buy a plane ticket and kind of enjoy this roller coaster but it was awesome and uh doing that by yourself seemed to require a lot of liquid assets shall we say and so it began this like okay if you mean cash yeah it requires money to go places. There's no denying that. Um, and we had this conversation, uh, I don't know, what, a summer ago, a year ago, um, kind of. But introducing this goal of every single year, we're going to go on a trip. Um, we've had to scale that recently because of the kids and cash and traveling with a two-year-old and a 10-month-old to Africa sounds terrible. We actually were going to try it. And then we got back from Ecuador with this, these two kids and was like, nah, they're not going to go that far. However, it, it is this disruption. It does pull us back out and it is always inconvenient to go do these things. Um, we take turns and who chooses where we go. And we've actually learned a ton about how to make it happen really cheaply. Hence, it involves credit cards, which I know everybody's afraid of. And Dave Ramsey wants us to cut them all up. And there's plenty of good advice there as well. It requires maturity with your finances. And we learned if we spend the same money on a travel card that we could have a plane ticket and just pay taxes. So we're going to California next week. It cost us $30. Okay, pause here though, because this introduces the one that can seem the least approachable, which is 
I'm thinking of myself and I'll say I'm 22 years old, I'm a post-grad, spending $20 a week on groceries. Do you remember those days? $20. $20. 20. Yeah. Uh, my rent for the room I'm in is just under 250 a month. Wow. $250 a month. Yeah, you own one t-shirt. Right. And I buy I pay for gasoline, but my my expenses are extremely minimal, but also there were people around me who were building financial architecture that I was like, what is it? I yes, I have a savings account. I is I know that it's bad. Like yeah. I haven't read Ramit Sethi's I Will Teach You to Be Rich Yet and go but I, you know, if I were to look at a guy who was thirty who owned a house and who had a retirement account and mm-hmm. a budget mm-hmm. and a car, I would go, How the frick did you, how do you, where did you start? What was square one? Being in a place where you're like you can take trips and mm-hmm. and understand enough about how credit works to not get taken advantage of. Where did the story originate? Yeah. Um so on the one hand, a lot of what people say is true. A lot of those doors into occupations and jobs and um, the world of finances really does require relationship. And so if you are a particularly outgoing and relational person, I, like I was blown away by the people in school who networked. There was this family, I remember, like their gift seemed to be connecting with other people. And it wasn't just in that like schmoozy way where like they knew a lot of names. It was like genuine connection and it allowed them to do their business. And it provided this whole set of when you wanted to go on to get a different degree, you knew someone at that school. And so you're not just a nobody floating through. And like that, there is some truth to that. There, There's truth to getting hired at certain companies because you know somebody there. Like that just that happens. I think as we mentioned in the the podcast the other week on the, on time, I would slow down some of my decision-making processes. Like there are some jobs that I would have kept longer um, and some ones I would have skipped sooner. If I'd thought about time differently, we were referring to this friend who is in a job and there's going to be a rough couple of months and they're thinking about leaving the job. And there's part of me that wants to like go and slap them and be like, a couple of months, like what are you talking about? You're in, you're in this career that you really enjoy. It could have a shitty couple of years and that would still be worth it. I don't care. And that like that's this callous 30-year-old speaking down to a 20-year-old of me now going, I know it sucks to buy cat food. I know. But you're getting paid 15 bucks an hour and you could be doing a lot of good with that cash inflow and you'd rather be unemployed for your last couple of months in town so you can do what exactly? Like, I know it's uncomfortable. Being comfortable isn't always the utmost goal here. Like I would have made choices differently. There's a kind of subtleness to making choices not in the moment and not being so flighty. Um, I was a bartender for a year at two different places and like it was an experience I wanted to have. I didn't plan on being a career bartender, but it's a skill set that I wanted to learn. And I, but like I love this idea of me creating a bar at some point and being an entrepreneurial person. So it wasn't wasted time. Like there's those words of like, you're, you're not wasting your time doing, doing what it is right now. And the occupation world, the career world has changed. Like the guys in our office here 
who started in mail rooms and worked their way up to massive positions within companies. Like I don't, that does still happen, but in very few and in, and in very rare occupations. Like that's not a guarantee for you to become the head of nursing in your hospital, though that's literally the case at Susie's hospital. So bad example. It's so good because, so we're make, working this film series, uh, documentaries of young guys. And one of the guys, I was just watching his interview and he had this great line of, we tend to overestimate what we can do in the short term and underestimate what we can do in the long term mm, yeah, and go, that when we're talking about how we figured out money is so important where one money is something that has a lot of shame around it because I always felt like I missed the class where people learned how to decide what bank or credit union or online bank uh, to bank with. And I missed the class on how to budget month to month and are there percentages of things that should go particular places. And then, and it kind of goes, well, you're on time and coming to that question and to go, I didn't, I would just say, you didn't miss the class. You're in the class right now. Mm-hmm. If you are going, what's what's a Roth account like? What's uh, how do retirement things? Which one should I have? And go, this is the perfect time to be asking that question. Yeah. So that that spurs two things. One is, it's always okay to ask. It's always okay to ask those questions because I didn't know about them, and we do have this retirement account that. I wasn't kidding when I say I don't anticipate ever seeing it because in my lifetime, in the last 10 years, that has happened for millions of people. Those got lost. That got taken away. That is not my security. That is something I am doing because it is worldly wisdom and it is something that doesn't really affect my lifestyle that much to take some percentage out of my paycheck. However, I'm not looking at that thing like it's going to solve all my problems. I'm not even looking at it like I'm ever going to see it. That's just that's just a thing. The other piece of, that, that elicits Blaine is um, I think I had a little bit more mercy for the degree that I got and kind of wanted to go walk back and say to those, those words that were spoken of, do the thing that you love. I would speak over that now and say like, you do need to love what you are doing or to find dignity in it or to find purpose in it. Because those are the things that are going to help you when it is hard. And it will be, whatever it is. Because the enemy loves to bring shame and condemnation. And if you are working in a fly shop or mowing lawns for a summer or doing an online startup, like there's going to be self-doubt. There's going to be, I've made massive mistakes. There's going to be feelings of being stuck or having made the wrong choice. All of those are going to be there. And if you have the words of like, this is something that I really love. And so even if it's not necessarily the most lucrative thing in the world, I get to do something I love my whole life. Like there's value in that. If it has purpose and meaning, that's something that our generation is mocked for wanting. And yet it's like, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, like that's actually a really noble thing to want to have purpose and meaning in what you do. That's going to help when things hit the fan because they will. We've actually spoken about this in podcasts as well. Eyes for what it could be doing for you, even if it's mowing lawns, like if it's building that 
ah, that resilience or patience or the presence to just have eyes for the beauty that's right in front of you, even if it's small, like those are really good things that are going to be building on the person you're becoming. And we're going to see the fruit of that in 10, 20 years. Even if you don't all turn into Casey Neistat and have a bunch of money and all drive Teslas, like that can't be everyone's goal because that actually just can't happen for all of us. And that's okay. Like if that's your <laughs> metric of success, go back and listen to episode one. You, you actually have to have better metrics for that. What I like so much about the points you're making is that if I look at your life right now, it could look like you are checking the American success boxes. and I re- From the outside, because the inside doesn't feel like that at all. But I, we really need to say, you never set out to do that. The goal was not, how do I set up a Vanguard account to invest in index funds as quickly as possible? Those were not the values. That's the story that has unfolded in a desire to grow as a man and to have a higher capacity for joy, to be a better friend, to be a better husband, right? Those are the values. Right. And like I love, this one is asking, how did you become a homeowner? And I'm really asking that one because this is a wonderful one to demystify, sort of put in position because I had a buddy who's here in town and when he learned that I was 28 and that we were the same age, he went, oh, I'm, I wish I didn't know that. And it was hysterical, but he was being serious where he went, oh, you're you're so much further into like the adult thing. And I kind of wanted to go, hey, listen, Em and I never said in our 20s we want to become homeowners. We didn't even know we wanted to. There was a time where we were praying into the year. And Jesus said, I'd like you to move. And we said, great. And then he said, and I would like you to buy. And then he intensely confirmed it through other people in a communal process of discernment over the next several months. And then it like, and and then a process unfolded where we went, okay, well, can we learn about how mortgages work? And how does a down payment work? And can we move into our parents' basement for six months to pull additional cash together as necessary. And with very few exceptions, the overwhelming majority of guys I know who in their 20s and in their 30s bought any property, their parents were like, here is some of your inheritance that was set aside to help with that mysterious thing that is a down payment on a house. It's not like a goal that everybody has. You're not a man if you become a homeowner. It looks sexy. You're in a beautiful little neighborhood that's so suburban. And that is actually the visible part of a life with God. Like you were on a walk in the neighborhood or whatever and like saw it. Like the story is always crazy. What would you add? It is. So I had this moment we were driving around. um, We were visiting family in Chicago and we were downtown just looking at these brand new swanky apartments and it felt like every car we were passing was brand new and I was looking around going like who are these people that can afford these things like I I have had this like mantra of don't have debt despite the fact that we have student loans and a mortgage um drilled into me so like we bought a minivan yeah we bought it with cash on Craigslist 
and it's like very used and banged up. Like, yeah, it's not sexy. We drove to the world's sketchiest. <laughs> I mean, how how you got that van is hilarious. But. Yeah, I I, tech- <laughs> I really liked buying cars from sort of sketchy used car dealers, and if they are not uh, native English speakers, so much the better. Um, I don't know why that's been the case. Anyway, like I'm driving around this in Chicago and I'm just seeing these things and, and maybe some people are out there like buying it all in cash and like they are just killing it. There are those people. There are. But there were way, way more apartments and high rises and fancy cars. I'm like, no way are you all out here just killing it. Like that's just, I know it's not the case. I know from the stories I hear firsthand, people are not walking around the United States just raking it in. But that's what you look at when you see or you hear like, oh, we have a house. You're like, wow, my gosh, like you must have just been killing it. And it's like, well, no, I am just I'm actually more interested in living with integrity and following the voice of God. And this happens to be where I am right now because of the generosity of other people. That's where we are. My 20 year old self who's looking at it going like, okay, so you you do these triathlons, you work around some hearts, you have a house, you're married with kids. Like, how did you get there? That's like quite the leap. I actually find myself saying like, well, first, Sam, I think you need to spend some time wrestling with your identity. And after you've done that for a couple of years and had some other people who are older and wiser speak into that, and you've come to reconcile some of the damaged places and begin to operate out of the true places, then you actually have to begin quite a long journey that is still continuing and its focus is really on the the quality of man you are becoming, not necessarily the things you accomplish. And from there and your walk with Jesus, you learn to implement a few things. And for me, disrupting autopilot was one of them with the trips and being okay with relationships, providing opportunity and following the wild goose, taking these crazy 180 turns and letting the wild goose be very disruptive um, was huge, Um, continues to be so. And all of a sudden with those choices in the day, I look back and I go, wow, like the miles I'm most proud of aren't the things that the world holds up. In fact, I kind of try to hide some of those things. Um, I'm more proud of the fact that every day I'm kind of wrestling with, okay, like what's working and what isn't working? Like, where's the pain? How, how have I not been living in ways that I'm proud of and what are some ways that I want to continue giving energy towards and it's like those are some of the same questions I was asking myself when I was 22 and applying to jobs and hoping they wouldn't hire me so I could keep riding my longboard to the beach all right I've got one more and when I think about your 20s which I've witnessed on the one hand because the 20s are exploration and frontier there is a lot of frustration and there's a lot of difficulty and there's a lot of finishing a day going man what happened or in the resources arena I just love to say there's only one story with resources money or otherwise and that's that there's not 
as many as you can conceive would be useful to have done. You don't have enough. And <laughs> exactly. And go ask any person, do they have enough or would more be more helpful? You know, you read people's memoirs and it's at this point in our life we didn't have very much. And I go, at this point in your life, you were a person. And so there were the seasons where and still are the seasons where you're not buying a beer a summer. And I'm mad because I'm like, we need to have a conversation. And you're like, we could sit in my living room and do nothing. Or you could buy me a beer. I'm like, screw you, I'm buying you a beer. So there is uh, the tension of growth. On the other hand, there is also a lot of joy. And I think like there's also uh, enjoying that decade, which I think what I would... So my last question is, did you like, did you enjoy your 20s? And what were the practices or things that contributed to regular joy in that decade? Uh, yeah, I totally enjoyed my 20s. And um, there was also a lot of pain and a lot of grief and a lot of growth and a lot of loss and discomfort. And um, I love the words exploration and frontier. And there's, in the literal ages of exploration and frontier a lot of people die it is a dangerous place dysentery's all over the place man and so that's your personal life like be okay with the fact that that's going to happen in some ways um yeah i think the, my answer the things more specifically is going to sound sort of ascetic um i i learned early on with not having a lot of money that if we could focus our joy in specific places, we could actually get a lot more out of it and be okay with the fact that we're not ticking the boxes of what the world would like to present as things you must do to be happy. So we don't eat out very much. I don't know the last time I went and saw a movie in the movie theaters. Um, I've been to a lot of those types of things. Um, and instead, our first like six months of marriage, we took all of that money that we might have done all of those things with and we bought climbing memberships and we had bikes and we would bike the 10 blocks to the climbing gym and we'd do that and then we'd come home and have you know our rice and beans and actually as cliche as it is when you can't afford everything and the, the ceiling gets brought way, way down on what you can do. The joy of simple things actually increases exponentially. And that has still been the case. Like we just, we don't have that much. And what we have, we try to be very generous with and be very wise with managing. And so, yeah, I'd love to have more friends over and make more delicious food and have more beer. But like the the joy of when I do get those moments because it's not just this easy, yeah, here it is. Like, we'll just do this thing. We'll go see a movie. We'll go get a cup of coffee. Um, the times we do get to do it, we're like, oh, we've got this gift card and we got this other thing. Now we get to go. Like, it is so much more sweeter than if it's just like kind of this meh, like this is what I do. This is what I expect type behavior. And I remember when we were trying to do the, um, the traveling thing and some of the reading we did, there was... I forget who, because I've looked at so many different stories. Um, but someone was saying, like, if you are okay with denying yourself, like, the cup of coffee for a year, like, you just, you don't go out for for food. 
and you, you just make that stuff at home and it's much cheaper. And if you're okay with that, you could potentially be having some amazing dish in Thailand or in the UK and you're sitting there having langoustines in Oban and that's actually the result of not having a bunch of coffee in town. How much more do you enjoy that moment, that story? That's like a little example of if you just looked at that, you'd be like, wow, these guys, like they're killing it. Look at them. They're in the UK and they're having like this food at this nice place. But it's like, well, actually this is the result of a lot of small choices and some of them not so fun, but like the result I actually really enjoy. A decade dismantled with zoomed out upon (laughs) dismantled. Yeah. Right. That's great. So, uh, this is your last episode as, uh, as our audience. So I just want to thank you, Sam, for being a part of our journey here. Mm, You're so welcome. I'll be switching over now too. Now still going to be here. Uh, Still part of the audience. We're all still, we're still on this journey of growth. And unfortunately, I've got lots more moaning about money to come. 